Our scripture this morning is Psalm 9. Psalm 9, verse 1. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all of your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and exult in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. When my enemies turn back, they stumble and perish before your presence. For you have maintained my just cause. You have sat on the throne, giving righteous judgment. You have rebuked the nations. You have made the wicked perish. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. The enemy came to an end in everlasting ruins. Their cities you rooted out. The very memory of them has perished. But the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice. He judges the world with righteousness. He judges the peoples with uprightness. The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. And those who know your name put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Sing praises to the Lord who sits enthroned in Zion. Tell among the peoples his deeds. For he who avenges blood is mindful of them. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. Be gracious to me, O Lord. See my afflictions from those who hate me. O you who lift me up from the gates of death, that I may recount all your praises, that in the gates of the daughter of Zion I may rejoice in your salvation. The nations have sunk in the pit that they made, and the net that they hid, their own foot has been caught. The Lord has made himself known. He has executed judgment. The wicked are snared in the works of their own hands. The wicked shall return to Sheol, all the nations that forget God. For the needy shall not always be forgotten, and the hope of the poor shall not perish forever. Arise, O Lord, let not man prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. Put them in fear, O Lord. Let the nations know they are but men. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning once again. My name is Dave Farley. I'm one of the pastors here at Grace Christian Fellowship. Thanks so much for being here this morning. I know it's really crowded in here. We had to pull out a bunch of extra rows towards the end. Um, Very soon, probably next week, uh, we're going to have three to four home groups a week assigned to the overflow room to make room in here for new people. So, uh, which is, this is a great problem to have, but it is a problem. So if you're in a small group, and you all should be in small groups, by the way, Small groups are the best way to get involved at GCF. If you're in a small group, um, look for an email from your small group leader. We have a a schedule we've already put together. And again, it'll be probably three to four home groups a week that'll be uh, in the fellowship hall. That'll be roughly, that means your group will be in the fellowship hall roughly once a month. Um, And that'll really free up room in here for new people. And hold on, because we'll have a new building, Lord willing, in a couple of months. We're, we're telling people at this point um, sometime in February. It could be April. It could be December. But we're saying February. But we're holding that very loosely, knowing how construction usually goes. Let me say one more thing. Um, I am really excited about Sunday school starting up again in two weeks. So in two weeks, everything's going to change Service times will change. Uh, prayer at 8.15. Sunday school, 8.45 to 9.45. Sunday service at 10. That all begins in two weeks. Sunday school, uh, we're going we're to go back to our series called Defending the Faith. 
and we're going to spend roughly 12 to 15 more weeks uh, talking about all kinds of interesting apologetic issues like the problem of evil, science and faith, the exclusivity of Jesus, gender, homosexuality. Uh, we're going to deal with all the most common objections to the Christian faith, and again, that begins in two weeks, and we'll have also some fantastic classes for all the kids, also at 8.45 to 9.45. And when does that begin? Two weeks on the 12th. With that said, let me, let me pray as we jump into this morning's psalm. Father, we are so, so thankful for giving us so many reasons this morning to sing. Lord, you have saved us by your grace and for your glory. You have placed us into this community. You have provided for all of our needs, and you have secured a place for us in heaven. Father, you've been so good to us. Thank you. We pray now that you would send your spirit to give all of us the gift of understanding, help us to not just understand, but also very carefully and specifically apply the word of God to every area of our lives. We pray all these things in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Well, roughly 20 years ago, the United States overthrew the Taliban in Afghanistan. Why? They were harboring Osama bin Laden, and they were providing training grounds for terrorists. Tragically, in the last few weeks, the Taliban has taken over Afghanistan once again, making Afghanistan now the number two worst country in the world to be a Christian behind North Korea. As a result, there are Christians trapped literally this morning in Afghanistan. In fact, this morning I got an email from a pastor who has Christian friends there who are going to make a daring attempt to escape from Afghanistan sometime in the next few days, knowing that their life is probably on the line. One Afghan convert from Islam to Christianity recently wrote this about the takeover. The Taliban will kill the known Christians and want to spread fear. There are already posters appearing that if you have single girls, 15 years old, you have to marry them to Taliban soldiers. They, they will first be sent to madrasas for brainwashing. The parents may or may not be killed. One man received a letter that his house now belongs to the Taliban. The Taliban will take the property and assets of the Christians and all their women will be taken. These Christians are in desperate need of deliverance. What should they do? What would you do if you were in their situation? Now this morning, fortunately, all of us live in freedom. We're not afraid of Muslims taking our children, taking our houses, destroying our way of life. But nonetheless, all of us, to some extent, need to be delivered from something. Maybe you need to be delivered from a significant health crisis, or delivered from a boss, or delivered from a difficult marriage, or delivered from vicious slander and gossip. What do you do when you are acutely aware of your need to be delivered? What should you do? 
Well, that brings us to Psalm 9 this morning. King David was also acutely aware of his significant need for real, tangible, physical deliverance. So what does David do? David cries out to God in confidence for deliverance. Now, why did David pray so confidently for deliverance in Psalm 9? Because David was very aware of the fact that God had delivered him in the past. And in light of past deliverance, David prays confidently for future deliverance. In a similar sense, you and I have been delivered by God from past enemies and evils. In light of that, we can pray confidently for future deliverance. I want to look at this psalm under two headings this morning. The first is praising God for past deliverance, and the second is praying to God for future deliverance. So first, praying to God for past deliverance. Look with me at Psalm 9, verses 1 and 2. What was David delivered from in the first part of this psalm? He was delivered from his enemies. Verse 1, I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all of your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and exult in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. David looks around at the current situation and sees his great need for deliverance. And what's the first thing he does? He praises God for deliverance in the past. I wonder, is that what we usually do? When the walls come caving in on us, do we instantly praise God for what he's done in the past? Well, what has God done in the past for David that he's so excited about? He tells us in verses 3 to 8. Here he recalls God's past deliverance from his enemies. Verse 3, when my enemies turn back, they stumble and perish before your presence. For you have maintained my just cause. You have sat on the throne giving righteous judgment. You have rebuked the nations. You have made the wicked perish. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. The enemy came to an end in everlasting ruins. They're your cities. They're cities you rooted out. The very memory of them has perished. But the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice. He judges the world with righteousness, and he judges the peoples with uprightness. Now, it's difficult for us to place this psalm specifically in David's life, but we know from First and Second Samuel that recounts David's life that he was delivered on many different situations. He was delivered, he says, from lions and bears when he was a shepherd taking care of his sheep. He was delivered from Nabal, the fool. Remember that story? David almost takes matters into his own hands and makes a huge mistake, but Nabal's wife pleads for mercy, and the next day, what happens to Nabal? He drops dead. God delivered him. God delivered David from Goliath, the mighty Philistine soldier. God delivered David from King Saul, who went crazy with jealousy and tried to kill David numerous times with spears and with soldiers. God even delivered David from treachery, from his own son, 
who tried to take the kingdom away from David. Again and again and again in David's life, God delivers him from his enemies. Now, at this point, a word of caution is in order. Unlike David, you and I are not the kings of Israel charged with protecting the promised land from all of Israel's physical enemies. Furthermore, we are not God's anointed king called to lead God's people. David lived under a very different context, a different covenant, a different historical setting. You and I are called to love and serve our enemies following the example of King Jesus. Nonetheless, we do have something in common with David. God delivered David from his greatest enemies. And God has delivered us from our greatest enemies. God has delivered you, Christian, from the power of sin. God has delivered you, Christian, from the power of death. And God has delivered you, Christian, from Satan. And he did that by sending his own son, Jesus, the King of kings and Lord of lords, to die on the cross in our place, destroying the things that cause us the greatest damage. Sin, death, and the devil. Hebrews 2, 14 to 15 describes how this happened. Since therefore the children that is us share in flesh and blood, he that is Jesus himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Although Satan is active, he is a defeated foe. And as a Christian, you have nothing to fear. What's the worst that could happen to you, Christian? You could die. But death is the doorway into paradise. We have nothing to fear. If God delivered you from the greatest danger, which is death, if God delivered you from the greatest enemy, which is the devil, and if God delivered you from the greatest power, which is sin, then surely God can deliver you from your enemies right now. He has the power. And he's proven himself trustworthy in the past by delivering you from sin, death, and the devil. But Dave, if you only knew the nature of my enemies, my boss, my ex-spouse, my coworker, my neighbor, my brother, my sister, my parents. They're vicious, they're mean, they're vindictive. Are they as vicious, mean, and vindictive as Satan? No. And God has delivered you from Satan. Therefore God is able to deliver you from your enemies. But what was David delivered from in the past? He was delivered from, from his enemies. Well, what else? David was also delivered from trouble. Look with me at verse 9 and 10. The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. 
And those who know your name put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, O Yahweh, have not forsaken those who seek you. David describes Yahweh as a stronghold for the oppressed and the troubled. He says, and those who know your name put their trust in you. Christians are meant to put their trust in Yahweh, God, their stronghold in times of trouble. Well, what is a stronghold exactly? This word is often translated as a refuge, a high place, or a massive rock. Now, during the Cold War, people were terrified, rightfully so, of being the victims of a nuclear holocaust. And it's hard to blame them for their fear. How many of you were alive during the Cold War? Okay, about half of us. So, in preparation for nuclear holocaust, the U.S. government built several spectacular strongholds or bunkers to save them when the Russians came and dropped bombs on us. Now, these spaces were designed to protect our government agencies and preserve continuity of government. One of my favorite strongholds was called the Greenbrier. It was located 250 miles southwest of Washington, D.C., in the mountains of West Virginia. It was literally inside a mountain in West Virginia. In 1958, the Greenbrier Resort built a massive conference center on the side of this mountain, but the whole thing was really a front for the government. The construction project really was designed to deceive everyone from knowing that they were also simultaneously building a 112,000 square foot bunker in the side of this rock mountain. So right below this really nice resort, uh, several thousand feet below the ground, was this huge bunker, and it was complete with everything from a 400-seat cafeteria to a dental office. It was designed to be a stronghold and to protect our government in, in the case of nuclear disaster. This stronghold remained top secret until the Washington Post revealed it in 1992. To give you a perspective on how big this thing was, uh, the West Tunnel door alone weighed 25 tons, just one of the doors. It's hard to imagine a safer place to be in the event of a nuclear war. David says that Yahweh is a stronghold for those in times of trouble, and he's a stronghold for the oppressed. Yahweh can provide way more security than a huge bunker inside of a mountain. Yahweh created mountains and galaxies and the universe. He is the stronghold of strongholds. And he provides shelter for those in times of trouble and for those who are oppressed. Notice how David says times, plural, of trouble in verse 9. Multiple troubles. David was constantly facing trouble, constantly in need of a stronghold, constantly feeling oppressed. Maybe that's you this morning. What troubles are you facing? Financial trouble, health trouble, job trouble, vaccination trouble? COVID-19 troubles, 
sleep troubles, parenting troubles. Life is full of trouble and oppression. God is a stronghold for the troubled. God is a stronghold for the oppressed. Run to him. He provides a stronghold through Jesus. And there on the cross, Jesus is our stronghold protecting us from the wrath of God, which is far worse than a nuclear fallout. Notice in these verses the glory and splendor of Christ. In these verses, we read something very interesting. Not only is God a righteous judge who inflicts vengeance on David's enemies, verses 3 to 8, God is also a stronghold for the oppressed and the troubled. He's both. This means that God is supremely powerful and supremely gentle. He is infinitely great and wonderfully kind. He is holy and he is helpful. He is incredibly strong and he's incredibly tender. And we see this come together perfectly in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Listen to how Revelation 5 describes Jesus. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered so that he can open the scrolls and its seven seals. So here Jesus Christ is described as a lion, a vicious predator. Let's keep reading. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. Jesus Christ is both the lion of the tribe of Judah and the lamb of God slain for the sins of the world. He's both. And I think sometimes we emphasize one over the other. But we have to keep both these things in tension. He's a lion and he's a lamb. And because he's both, he can deliver us from our enemies. David was delivered from his enemies. He was delivered from his troubles. And when he thinks about this, his past deliverance, he is moved to praise. Look at verse 1 and 2 again. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all of your wonderful deeds. I'll be glad and exult in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. Then verse 11 and 12. Sing praises to the Lord who sits enthroned in Zion. Tell among the peoples his deeds. For he who avenges blood is mindful of them. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. You can really sense and feel David's emotions coming through as he is crying out to God with songs of thanksgiving and praise. David is not going through the motions. He's not merely mumbling the lyrics. In Christ alone, 
My hope is found. David's excited. He's passionate because he understands what God has delivered him from. Therefore, he raises his voice emotionally with loud songs of praise. And by the way, GCF excels in this department. If your heart is never, ever affected, if you're never, ever just a little bit emotional during corporate singing, I got to wonder, do you understand what God has delivered you from under the new covenant? You know that God has delivered you from the power of death. God has delivered you from the power of Satan. God has delivered you from eternal conscious torment in hell. That's what God has done for you. If that does not move you to praise, I don't know what else I can do or say to you. Your heart is dead. I'm the first to admit, my feelings come and go. We can't rely on our emotions or our feelings. But David was pretty excited when he recounted what God had done for him in the past. How much more we Christians under the new covenant who know about the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus David's excited, so he praises God, and God demands our praise. Now, at this point, you may have an objection. Dave, isn't it arrogant or narcissistic for God to demand that we praise him? I mean, how would you feel about someone who was constantly saying, praise me, praise me, praise me, a musician or a rapper or an athlete? Russell Wilson constantly saying, praise me, praise me, praise me. You would think that Russ had deep, deep, deep insecurities, maybe other issues. You would think he was incredibly arrogant or proud. So is God arrogant or proud? Is God narcissistic when God demands our praise? No. Why does God command us to praise him? Because praise completes our joy. Think about it. We all find great joy in praising things, don't we? When you see that newborn child, you say, wow, look at how cute her smile is. When you're up at Manitou Park and you walk by the lilac bushes with your significant other, and you smell that incredible smell, and you say, sweetheart, do you smell that? Or when you're watching the Mariners in the playoffs, which will never happen, by the way. But if that did happen, and there was a walk-off home run of the ninth inning, you would say to the person next to you, holy cow, did you see that? Yeah. You'd be excited. Right? It's never going to happen, but if it did happen, you'd be excited. Imagine watching a sporting event or a cooking show and never being able to say anything to anyone about it. Keep your mouth closed when you watch the Seahawks in the playoffs. 
Would that diminish your experience of watching the Seahawks? Yes. Because we find great joy in praising things. God has hardwired us that way. Imagine never being able to sing God's praises. You would miss out on so much joy. God commands us to praise him because God wants us to be supremely happy and satisfied in singing his praises. God commands our praise because God loves us and God wants us to experience the joy of praising him. And you're going to spend the next 20 trillion years praising God. And it's going to cause joy to explode in your heart. The more God delivers us, the more we praise him. That brings us to the second point. So first, praising God for past deliverance. Second, praying to God for future deliverance. So David prays praises God for past deliverance, and then David confidently prays to God for future deliverance based on his past deliverance. But what does David pray specifically for in this psalm? What does he want deliverance from in this psalm? Again, his enemies. Look at verses 13 and 14 again. Be gracious to me, O Lord. See my affliction from those who hate me. O you who lift up, or you who lift me up from the gates of death, that I may recount all your praises, that in the gates of the daughters of Zion I may rejoice in your salvation. David has some real enemies that are causing real problems in his life. They're causing so many problems that David says that he feels like he's on death's door. End of verse 13. He says, the gates of death. Maybe that's you this morning. Maybe your enemies are making your life so miserable that it feels like you want to die. You want to quit. You want to throw in the towel. It's just too hard. In the midst of that, David cries out to God. But notice what he says. Verse 13a. Be gracious to me, O Lord. David is not saying, Yahweh, save me because I'm a really good person. I've kept all your laws, done all the right things. I go to church. I go to small group. I serve on ministry teams. God, save me. I deserve it. No one is worthy of being saved. Not Billy Graham, not the Apostle Paul, not Mother Teresa, not your pastor. None of us are worthy of being saved. So David says, be gracious to me, O Lord. God, deliver me because you are a God of grace, not because I'm worthy. God never says to us, clean up your life, do better, try harder, then maybe I'll rescue you. No. God rescues us because he's gracious, not because we've earned any notion of being rescued. Part of God's deliverance, as I mentioned in Psalm 7 a few weeks ago, is God causing our enemies to reap what they sow. 
Look at verses 15 to 18. The nations have sunk in the pit that they have made. In the net that they hid, their own foot has been caught. The Lord has made himself known. He has executed judgment. The wicked are snared in the work of their own hands. Higion, Selah, that means he's singing here. Verse 17, the wicked shall return to Sheol, or death, all the nations that forget God. For the needy shall not always be forgotten, and the hope of the poor shall not perish forever. Part of God's deliverance of David in the future is going to be allowing David's enemies to experience the consequences of their actions. You and I reap what we sow. Listen to how one scholar says this. God is not mocked. Sin carries its own punishment. Violent men tend to die by violence. The greedy suffer the discontent that comes with their greed. Those who view pornography ruin their own sex life. Gossips tear down their own character as they spread stories. Others think less of them. God will deliver David in the future by allowing his enemies to experience the consequences of their sins. By the way, side note, I have been so aware of this recently. When you and I do things God's way, it leads to flourishing. When we disobey God's commands, it leads to pain and misery. I've heard a few stories this week that are so heartbreaking. Satan lies to us and tells us again and again and again that sin satisfies, but sin will never satisfy. It'll lead to pain and misery, just like David's describing here. Back to Psalm 9, the end of the psalm. Again, David is praying to God for deliverance. Arise, O Lord, let not man prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. Put them in fear, O Lord. Let the nations know that they are but men. David prayed earnestly for deliverance from his enemies. And he prayed with confidence knowing that God had delivered him in the past. But Dave, what if our enemies are incredibly powerful? Can God still deliver us when we pray to him? In 701 B.C., 300 years after the reign of King David, during the reign of King Hezekiah of Judah, the Assyrians were the most brutal, bloodthirsty, vicious, and powerful army on the planet. And God had actually raised them up to judge his own people. And the Assyrians began to move their massive army down the western coast of Judah. And they're inching closer and closer and closer and closer to Jerusalem where King Hezekiah is stationed. And they hear about this massive army coming, destroying everything in their path like a massive train that cannot be stopped. And eventually the army shows up and they encamp around the city of Jerusalem, 185,000 soldiers, according to 1 Kings. Now, just imagine for a moment being in the city of Jerusalem with relatively thin 
walls. Knowing that just outside the walls is the most bloodthirsty, vicious, brutal army on the face of the earth. Now, there's kids here, so I won't tell you what the Assyrians did to their victims, but they were an incredibly brutal people. So they show up a few feet from the walls of Jerusalem, and their commander comes forward and says to all the uh, citizens of Jerusalem, up on the city walls, you guys have no chance. He begins to taunt them. We've destroyed every city that we've come up against. Why is yours any different? Your God's not going to save you. All the gods of the other cities have failed them. We're going to destroy you. Give up, surrender, we'll have mercy. You have no chance against us. We can be here for months, if not years. We have all kinds of supply lines. And if you stay in there, you're going to die slowly of starvation. Sieging a city meant a slow, painful death by starvation. And we know from the Old Testament that when sieges happened, moms would eat their kids. They got so desperate for food. So just imagine being in that city, knowing outside the walls is this massive army prepared to hang out for a long time while you die slowly of starvation inside the city. What would you do? Well, King Hezekiah was desperate. So he cried out to God for deliverance. What happens? Well, that very night, something amazing happens. 2 Kings 19, 35 to 37. And that night, the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. Then Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and went home and lived at Nineveh. And as he was worshiping in the house of Nishrach, his god, Adramelech and Charizar, his sons, struck him down with the sword and escaped into the land of Ararat. And Esarhaddon, his son, reigned in his place. Is God able to deliver you from your enemies in the future? This story gives me so much hope, so much confidence in the power of God. God delivered David. God delivered Hezekiah. And God can deliver us. He is Abel, like I mentioned last week, he spoke and hundreds of billions of galaxies came into existence out of nothing. If God has that kind of power, surely God can rescue you from your enemies in the future. He is able, but is he willing? That depends. That depends. Sometimes, in the divine mystery of God's providence, God allows us to not be delivered. Why? Everything God does for us, he does motivated by love. 
Sometimes God will not deliver us because God wants to teach us dependence on him and humility, and he wants to make us more like Jesus. And we often grow the most in the middle of significant pain and hardship. Is God able? Yes. Is God willing? Sometimes. But God always, always, always does what is best for his children. How do we know? Because he sent his only son, Jesus, to suffer and die on the cross in the place of his children. If God has done that for us, he loves us. He knows what is right for us. He knows what is best for us. And he's motivated by our good and his glory. Whatever's gonna bring about the most good for us and the most glory for God, that's what God's going to do. If God does not deliver you, it's not because he's not able. It's because he has a better plan for you. And that plan may be shrouded in a mystery until we're in glory. We may have lots of questions for God. God, why are you not rescuing me? But someday, 10 million years from now, it'll all make sense. But in the meantime, we're called to trust God and pray. Trust God and pray. Let's go back to where we started. Right now, this very morning, there are Christians in Afghanistan who need to be delivered. Is God able? Yes. Is God willing? We don't know. But we know that God always does what is best. And because of what he did in the past, we can pray with confidence that he'll deliver us in the future. God may not deliver the Afghan Christians this morning, but God will deliver all of his saints when Christ returns in glory and gives us our glorified resurrection bodies. And at that point, there'll be no more need for deliverance from anything. Jesus Christ reigns, he is conquered, he has overcome, and he is able. Let's pray together. Father, thank you.